All right. Well, here we are right at nine o'clock. How about that? Let's pray and we are going to get into it. I'm just going to say right now, there it's going <laughs> to Asher's request is not going to age very well. This will be the one uh, this will be the one session that I think will be a little bit technical, and the rest are all down the way will be much more, much more straightforward. I'm going to try to make it as straightforward as possible, uh, but I think that you'll you'll see when we get into it uh, why it might be a little bit more challenging conceptually than some of the other ones. But having said that, let's pray for clarity and some grace, and then uh, we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, we are happy to be here, and we are thankful. Uh, for breath in our lungs, we're thankful to assemble as the body of Jesus Christ, and we're thankful to learn about union with Christ. And so as we do so, we pray that you would um, help us to focus on the main things, and um, for many people here, uh, perhaps forget certain things that just have are going to have very little bearing on practically on how they in particular think about things, um, that they could hold on to what is true and good and helpful um, and the rest uh, for them as a listener would fall to the ground and, that, and, and, and them know that that's okay. And so we pray that you would give grace to us in a special way during this time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So last time we talked about how Christ fulfilled the story of the Bible. We talked about two types of fulfillment. One is simple promise fulfillment, a future tense statement becomes true. And the other kind of fulfillment we call typological fulfillment, which is fulfillment, not that a promise comes true, but is something being filled up, brought to its telos or end, like the blossom is the fulfillment of the seed. And that's how he said Christ is the fulfillment of quite a few things in the Old Testament, including the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the temple, and I spent extensive time arguing Israel as a type that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. And so now we begin talking through the outline that I went through in our first class together. And we talked about there being kind of two aspects of union with Christ, one more foundational than the other. Does anyone remember the two, the two ways that um, we might think of union with Christ? Anybody? Okay, so the first and the more foundational way we talked about Christ is a mystic is the mystical union. Mystical union that somehow we are united with Christ in a way that frankly we can't explain. But that's real. In other words, it's not just figurative language. It's not just a poetic expression. There is a rich and robust kind of union and I'm going to uh and reinforce that today, that we have with Christ. It is mystical. I can't pretend to explain exactly how it works, although one of the burdens of the, uh, our time together today is to, is to try to do a little bit of it. I can only go so far in explaining the mystical union of Christ with the believer. Okay, And then the second is what we're, I think the one we are more familiar with is position by proxy. Position by proxy, that is, the things that are true of Christ are true of us because we're in Christ. If, you heard, if you've heard of something like, these things are imputed to the believer, that would be position by proxy. Okay? Uh, uh, Christ is righteous, therefore I'm credited with his righteousness. That would, that would be a great example of that. Christ was justified by the Spirit, therefore I am as well. We'll talk about that today. Um, and so I want to wade into some of the deeper waters here 
and just talk about the nature of the of union with Christ itself, realizing that we are going to have to stop at the door of mystery eventually. We cannot totally explain this. I'm going to try to like take one step towards demystifying it, and you might even think I'm like you know moving the goalposts here, and you might just say that I'm repositioning the mystery, and maybe that's true. I don't know. I'll let you decide. Um, but I want to talk about two different ways within the Reformed tradition that union of Christ is conceived. And the first model is what we're going to call and what has been called the bifurcation model, meaning two means split in half. No, so I'm clarifying for you, Asher. To split in half, there are two different kinds, okay? And on this view... There are really two types of union with Christ. And maybe there's a version of a third. Um, we're not going to talk about that one a ton. But there are really two types of union with Christ. We can't speak of union with Christ. We can speak of unions with Christ. And one, and, and, and one of these unions is this positional, sometimes called forensic, meaning legal. Okay, meaning... Um, according to God's declaration in the, in the divine courtroom, um, forensic, legal, positional. This is our position by proxy kind of understanding. The second is a spiritual union or a vital union with Christ. And these are two different things. Just to be very clear, it's not as though uh, they are the same thing and we're just talking about it in two different ways. It is... Uh, they must be, in fact, R. Scott Clark, which somehow, I don't know how he gets dubbed the true north of Reformed theology, but somehow he does. He sums it up this way. There is no question we need both a legal and a vital union with Christ, but these must be distinguished. Okay? I don't have that on as a slide for you, do I? Yeah, there we are. Okay. There is a third way that they talk about virtual, a virtual union, but that's really just experiencing the benefits of union with Christ, which is going to be the rest of our series. So we're not going to talk about that. Okay, We're talking about what is it? What is the union itself? First answer is there's actually, it's a mistaken question. There's actually two kinds of unions. Um, the first kind of union is this credit this imputation. Have you heard the word imputation before? It's kind of credited to you. And it's this first kind of union that we find justification in. God declaring us righteous. That is kind of the purpose of this first kind of justification. It doesn't have to do with anything else except God's pure declaration of righteousness over us. And that just is the first understanding of union with Christ. Okay? So, declared righteous, that is the first kind of union with Christ, to be declared righteous. God looks at believers, declares them righteous. Okay. The second kind of union is a kind of spiritual connection with Christ, this vital union that results in moral change. That can result in a, a, a nourishing spiritual life with Christ um, and, and can affect sanctification down the way. 
but but is really more of a almost like a, a vital connection, almost like this personal familiar, familiarity with Christ, more so than the Spirit actively transforming. And maybe a little bit of both. Sometimes they aren't clear. Um, on this view, and this is the part that I imagine most of you will find very odd, um, is that it does require, and, and this, does, this does require moving into the first application of the benefits of union with Christ. It's this right here. That on this view, justification, I told you that that's the first, the, 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 the first version uh, of union, which is this legal forensic a, a union with Christ, that justification produces repentance and faith. That justification produces conversion. This is the view of the Escondido School out in Westminster West. R. Scott Clark, John Fesco, Michael Horton. Why does that sound maybe? I mean, maybe some of you haven't studied the Ordo Salutis, the kind of the order of things. Why does that sound odd to you? If it does. Now, maybe if it doesn't, that's fine. I'm going to explain why it sounds odd. Why does it sound odd to say that justification precedes union with Christ and therefore repentance and faith? Okay. I have faith. Yeah. And then because of the faith, then that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So in the traditional understanding, the traditional Reformed understanding coming out of the Protestant Reformation, represented in the Westminster Confession of Faith, Second London, justification, kind of in the order of things, comes on the heels of repentance and faith. Why do you think? That people like Michael Horton, John Fesco, or Scott Clark, why do you think that why do you think that they would want to say that justification comes before any of those things? Any ideas? There's something that motivates this move. They wouldn't embrace something that they thought was counterintuitive unless they were trying to preserve something. Anyone any ideas? Yes, sir. Well, no, they're very So they're definitely not defending that because they're reformed. They're as milk stout reformed as you can be. So they're not, they don't think that we make the first move. So that's not, it is a good guess though. Yeah. Um. So I think they would agree that you're justified before you are born again, understood as regeneration. But why would they want to? Why would they want to say that when it seems so? Count it seems to not be very straightforward. It's not infant baptism. Let me tell you why. Central to the Reformation was the problem of Roman Catholicism saying that the work of God in us was being made the basis of God's forgiveness. 
it wasn't that salvation on a Roman Catholic view was works only or something like that. It was the idea that you got a measure of grace, and then essentially it was up to you to figure out what to do with it, and then God's declaration over you was on that basis. If you didn't get enough credit, you get to go to purgatory, the rest of the story. But listen to what Bruce McCormick says here, and, and all the Escondido guys tend to follow Bruce McCormick. Here's what his accusation is. He says that classical Protestant theology imported the very same problem when it made forensic justification dependent upon the exercise of faith and the regeneration from which faith flows. So once again, justification was made dependent on God's work in us. What they are trying... Let me finish the... Uh, no, I don't need to finish that part. What they are saying is this. Listen, what the Catholics were doing is saying, you got grace, you were able to act in a way that was God-word, and then God gave you something. And he said the, the classical Protestant problem here was that they smuggled in the same problem into their own theology. They said, you know, on the classical understanding, you have regeneration of the heart. Now my heart is oriented towards God. That's a moral change. Okay, My heart goes from not oriented towards God towards oriented towards God. Now I repent and believe. Jesus has commanded that everyone repent and believe the gospel. That is his command. We read in 1 John, right, that we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so now I've obeyed God. Now... I am declared righteous on the basis of repentance and faith. And what the Escondido people are worried about is recreating the Catholic error within the Protestant order of salvation. Okay, that's what motivates this. Just to be very clear, uh, this is a minority report, a very small minority report, out of um, the Reformed camp, but these are some pretty serious names, and they're very godly folks. Uh, I just It seems to me to just be a funny view. Horton writes this, forensic justification. Again, when I say forensic, it sounds so confusing, doesn't it? Forensic just means like legally declared, not because you're actually righteous, but you're being counted as righteous. Forensic justification through faith is the fountain of union with Christ. So union with Christ flows out of being justified. I'm justified, then I'm united with Christ, and so on and so forth. Um, and on this view, God's declaration itself has a special power that has real effects. Um, and, and I'm going to paraphrase out some academic jargon from speech act theory, but Horton writes this, the justifying act of the Father causes union with Christ, which results in the drawing of the Spirit. So regeneration doesn't didn't doesn't didn't make it into that sequence there, okay? Um, which is typically in reformed understandings, a, a quickening of the heart, this being born again uh, by the Spirit. We talked about this in our last series, um, and it's kind of substituted out for the efficacious call, so that everything is is of God, okay? Simply put. The divine decree of justification is at the same time the effectual call that transforms. Let me read that again. Simply put, 
the divine decree of justification is at the same time the effectual call that transforms. Justification leads to these things. They're one and the same thing. Okay. Um, again, the, the view is willing to admit that there is some kind of spiritual union with Christ, but to use their own analogy, it's more like a commonwealth with a monarch or a, a ch children with parents. They're together in the same family, but you don't have a robust kind of a union. You've got a legal union, declared righteous. You have a what they call the vital union, which is an intimacy with Jesus. And then they, you, they have a virtual union, which is experiencing all the effects. But there isn't something like a... Because what they are afraid of is slipping into some kind of heresy with kind of, kind of combination of unions or some, a combination, I'm sorry, of natures or something like that. And so it is very much, on this view, more figurative language. It's kind of, we're associated with Jesus. And most importantly, that union with Christ follows being declared righteous and not the other way around. Okay? Um, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? The Escondido model here. I need to adjust them. There's some late federal reformers who developed that view, but contemporarily, that's who it's represented by. Any any thoughts on that? Let me ask a question. Has anyone even has anyone heard that view before? Okay, I try not to spend a ton of time on views that everyone knows is wrong and don't and has never heard of. But it is when you're talking when you're trying to explain what union with Christ is. This is one model on offer. Um, I think what we're going to see is that when we look at the text of Scripture and we look at what I'm going to suggest is that this is where theologizing gets ahead of exegesis. This is where theological worries combine to try to create a formula to preserve something as a because uh, they're so scared of lapsing into something else that they're just not willing to embrace what, in my judgment, is a fairly plain reading of the Bible in a couple of places. Um, let me say something else, and we'll address this in the next section, is that if the act of justification precedes union with Christ, then it becomes that we, we don't have any explanatory resources to explain justification. Like, why? There's no basis. It's, it becomes a legal fiction. It becomes a because God said so. Now, let me just be very clear. Because God said so in a lot of cases is a great answer to do things in the Christian life. I just want to be very clear. All right? But the idea is, why is this guilty person in the divine courtroom righteous? Because God declares them so. That's it. There's no explanatory resources behind it. You're going to see that the second view that I want to offer offers a mechanism that actually explains it, makes it a little bit more robust. It's not just a legal fiction. God is not simply saying something that is obviously false and making it true because he's God, because we are not, in fact, righteous. We are sinners. Um, and so a legal fiction is just saying, I know that you're a sinner and I'm declaring you righteous for no particular reason in you. Okay. Now, I want you to pause there and see kind of the other model on offer. Other model on offer. Okay? You don't have to try to pronounce pneumatological communion. What is pneumatological? What does it have to do with the what? The spirit. 
the Spirit. The Spirit. The pri- this is the primary view. This is as close as I'm going to be able to get, and I'm going to take you into the Scripture to try to show you the best that I can in a couple of instances in, uh, of, of explaining union with Christ, how it works, like the metaphysics of it. All right, And then if you accuse me of moving the goalposts to just another problem, maybe I'll say guilty as charged. I'm not sure. But this view is that union with Christ is accomplished by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of Christ. And that in the economy of redemption, Christ functions through the Spirit or even as the Spirit. Okay? A couple of things on this view. Despite being mystical, our our union with Christ is realistic. It is not metaphorical or analogical. I want you to listen to Greg Beal, who sharply disagrees with the Michael Horton School, J.V. Fesco School, R. Scott Clark School, and he follows Richard Gaffin, who is now, um, well, that doesn't matter. Beal, since Christ is now exalted, the believer shares in that exalted resurrection life. This is a vertical dimension of their existence in union with Christ, though this cannot be found in the Bible's earthly dimension. Christians are really and actually in the same location as as the ascended Christ in heaven because he is there and they are in union with him. That doesn't mean that I'm not actually here. I I mistakenly think I'm here, but I'm actually there. That's not what Beale's saying. He's saying that we are really and actually in the same location simultaneously as the ascended Christ in heaven because he is there and they are in union with him. That's the mystical union. Somehow in a way that we cannot explain, we are seated at the right hand of God in Christ. Okay? That is as robust as it gets, and it it is very, very strongly uh, contrasts with the first view. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time defending this one because I think the rest of the our time together today and next time uh, will clarify that this is just the best way to understand how Scripture speaks of it and then just leave it at that. Okay? Even Paul is going to say, remember, if you'll recall from our intro, intro lesson, where he's talking about a man and a woman in marriage, and he said, I'm, I know this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Okay? He's talking about a, a kind of coming together, a kind of union that is a mystery that we can't fully explain, but it doesn't mean we can't say anything about it. Okay? So the rest of our time together today, I want to explain the, fir- the, the first of two more. Let's see, do I have them both here? Yes, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit accomplishes union with Christ. The resurrected Christ functions through the Holy Spirit in the believer. Okay? Union with Christ, and then this is the what we'll get to next time. Union with Christ is the basis for all the blessings of salvation, including justification, sanctification, resurrection. So on this view, it's swapped. This view says union with Christ happens... And then it is not you sitting over there with nothing. It's there. It's you sitting over there united to Christ. And that's the basis of being declared righteous. So if you've ever heard it explained at a super popular level, like when God looks at you, he sees Jesus and says righteous, that just is to say this right here. Okay? 
The other view is to say, God looks at you and knows what Jesus did over here and calls you righteous. This view says, no, 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 union with Christ actually is the explanatory factor that grounds justification. We are justified because we're united with a righteous Christ, and God declares us righteous on the basis of union with Christ. Does that make sense? So it's not just a because God said so, even though that would be fine, but the Scripture seems to suggest something more robust, that God says so because we're united with His righteous Son. Okay, so it gives a mechanism for explaining justification that doesn't reduce to a bare legal fiction. All right. Okay. So let uh, let's go. Um, let's open up the Word and let's get into it. Uh, turn with me to First Corinthians chapter fifteen. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, as we seek to given understanding of what this second point means. What this second point means. I'm going to read verses 42, I'm sorry, yeah, 42 through 49. A passage that's largely remembered for being about the resurrection, and that's, of course, because that's exactly what it's about. But I want you to listen to this. Um, he talks about the, 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 the sun and the moon and the stars all having different kinds of glory. And there, verse 32, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That is talking about the body that is sown into the ground, like a seed, a dead body sown into the ground. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. Resurrection body. It is sown in weakness. These little jars of clay that are so fragile... It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Spirit. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Just hold on, we're going to return to that because that's where all the juice is in that one right there. A lot of debate about that. Right, But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let me just say a couple of things here. Uh, the spiritual body... Does it, when it says in verse um, 43b, it is sown, I'm sorry, in 44, it's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Some people have taken this to mean that you are, you know, kind of your body goes into the ground, but the resurrection, you're, you're kind of raised as like a ghost or a spirit or something. That's what a spiritual body is. But that's not how the way, that's not the way Paul uses this word pneumatikos to refer. In, in all of his writing. It simply refers to the activity of the Spirit. It will be a body that is on account of, animated by the activity of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be a spirit. It's not like Casper the Friendly Ghost Tyler is the eternal version of Tyler. That's not what it's saying. That's a, that is a, a contemporary misreading of how Paul uses uh, this particular adjective. It's not a ghost flesh or a soul flesh. It is a body that is imperishable, that is corporeal, 
but it is animated by, it is sustained by the Holy Spirit. The second is this, and, and, it's, and this may be a verse that you have grappled with trying to explain, and that is verse 45. What did I just do here? No, sorry. What I did is can't, I can't read. All right. So here we are. Thus it is written, the first Adam, first man, Adam, became a living being. And then, Paul says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, what on earth does that mean? The last man, we're talking about Christ, and we're talking about the resurrected Christ. And it says that the resurrected Christ became a life-giving spirit. Something that is animated by, again, verse 44, the activity of the Spirit. That's why it's clear that the Holy Spirit, I would suggest, is being referred to here. Okay? Right before that, when we get pneumatikos, we're getting a reference to the Holy Spirit in His work, the spiritual body. Here I would suggest, and it's the Spirit who gives life, by the way, and he already said, he says that in 2 Corinthians. He says, this letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So when Paul's thinking it's the Spirit who gives life, and it's the spiritual body that we will be raised with, and so, uh, and we're going to see something very similar in Romans chapter 8, but I don't want to run ahead and, and spoil my own conclusions. What I am suggesting here, and I don't expect you to buy it 100% in this moment, but because of how it's the word spiritual is a what I believe is a reference to the Holy Spirit in verse 44 because of how he consistently uses the adjective um, uh, pneumatikos, this, a spiritual body, and because in Paul's theology is the Spirit who gives life, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, that what this what is meant by that the second Adam became a uh, last Adam excuse me became a life giving spirit does not mean that he, it's not an ontological statement about the second person of the Trinity becoming the third person of the Trinity, but that that how he is presented to us is through the Holy Spirit, that Christ's acts as and through the Holy Spirit uh, by whom we are indwelled. Okay. That's what I'm going to suggest. I'm not suggesting that, and if I don't say this enough, people will think that I'm saying something that's clearly off the reservation. I'm not saying that Jesus Christ became the Holy Spirit as a person. I'm not saying God the Son became uh, God the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is that in the economy of salvation and redemption in the life of an individual believer, that the resurrected Christ works as the Spirit in us. Okay? Hold that thought, hold that thought, and turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul starts with a contrast in verse 9. He says... You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, then listen to this. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So what I want to suggest here is that Christ and the Spirit, in terms of how they work, that's the when you hear someone talk about the economy of salvation, you're talking about how the members of the Trinity work. When you're talking about the ontology or the imminent Trinity, you're talking about their actual being. Uh, the, all of this is a discussion of how they operate. Christ and the Spirit, in terms of how they operate after Christ's resurrection and ascension, to be very clear, like we talked about last time, it seems to be identified three ways in this passage. Well, number one, both are said to be in the believer. Both here are said to be in the believer. Secondly, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are used interchangeably. So look there at verse 10. Um, or I'm sorry, verse 9. If in fact you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then his very next line, he's clearly referring back to what he just said, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He's not saying, he's not introducing a brand new concept. He's just talked about the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says, and anyone who doesn't have this, that is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, he uses the terms interchangeably the Spirit of Christ. And then finally, the phrase Spirit of Christ, uh, whether it is understood to mean the Spirit that comes from Christ or the Spirit uh, who is Christ functionally, it just, in, in just the phrase itself implies this super, super tight, super tight relationship between Christ and the Spirit. And we are indwelt by the Spirit. I take it that that's not controversial and not new to anybody, okay, that we are indwelt by the Spirit. But between both Christ and the Spirit saying to be in the believer, Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ being used interchangeably, and the Spirit of Christ itself, just the phrase can, suggesting a super, super tight connection between the Spirit and Christ in redemption, um, I am suggesting to you that the best explanation for that is that Christ functions through the Spirit, and the Spirit is the operating mechanism of union with Christ. Okay? Well, another text, Acts chapter 2. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. How much time do I have? Ten minutes or so. Let me get through this. Oh, yes. I'm actually, I may even finish early. This is great. Okay. Acts chapter 2, we get Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Um, let me see where we need to back up with. Back up to... Um, Okay, let's let's uh, let's go to let's start at thirty-two. Okay, no, you know, let's just start at twenty-nine. That's okay. We're just really going to pick up at thirty-two, but let's just give the full context, brothers. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Of course, this is Peter speaking, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath. That he, uh, to him that he would sit, that he would set one of his descendants 
on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Which you might think is evidence that sometimes in the Old Testament things are said that the original... Anyways, just one to keep in your pocket for sometimes there's more in the Old Testament than the original author might have realized. Anyways, this Jesus, here we go. So now we get into it. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That is who? Who, who is exalted to the right hand of God? Jesus. And having received from the Father... The what? The promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, who do we usually associate with receiving the promised Holy Spirit? Us, right? If you were to say, who receives the promise of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? Your answer would be believers. And you would be right, but there's something behind that, is what I'm saying. Let's, let's Continue reading, being therefore exalted at the right hand of the Father. So this is resurrection plus ascension. It's not just, the, remember we said the 40 days of resurrection without ascension is not the most of the resurrection talk in the Bible. The vast majority of resurrection talk is ascended resurrection talk. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So now the, the Son, uh, Christ, has the Holy Spirit and who is it? He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And this is a fulfillment of what prophecy in the Old Testament? Does anyone know off the top of their head? Book, chapter, Pentecost, the fulfillment of the Spirit coming in. Huh? Joel, Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, that's exactly right. That this, There's one day where the house of Israel, where the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on people. And what Peter says here is that Christ is exalted to the right hand of God and that Christ has received from the Father. So you see how Trinitarian this is. Christ has received from the Father the Holy Spirit and it is Christ who then who has received this, he has poured uh, out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then, of course, he finishes it off. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Um, and so, because Jesus receives the promise of the Holy Spirit himself, and then Jesus is the one here pictured as pouring this out. Again, I want to suggest to you that the best explanation is that Christ operates through the Spirit. This is exactly what he told his disciples. He said, I've got to head out, but someone is coming behind me. And you remember, they were like, no, 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 no. Like, we've got a good thing going here. Like, let's just keep you. And then he even says, there's many things I have to tell you, but you cannot hear them now. The Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you, just as I have taught you. And so the idea is that there was someone coming who was going to play the role that Christ had been playing in the course of his ministry with the disciples. 
And that ended up being the Holy Spirit who Christ received. Christ received the Holy Spirit as promised by the Father at his exaltation, and he is the one who holds it out to us, and that is why we have the Spirit of Christ. Okay, so if we are in, so, and so here's how, I'm, here's how I'm putting it together. Here's how this view puts it together. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. John tells, I'm sorry, Jesus tells his disciples in John regarding the Spirit. He says, he is with you, but he will be in you. Now, you say, what's the difference between the Holy Spirit being with you and in you, Tyler? Tell me the metaphysics of indwelling. I have no answers, and neither do you. However, it is uncontroversial to suggest that the believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Okay? You're, you're, you're very rarely, if ever, going to find someone who does not acknowledge that. It is very, very clear uh, Jesus makes that clear in John. Pentecost makes that clear. Uh, Paul makes that very clear in terms of the Spirit indwelling us, and so we are temples. The pneumatological communion explains union. It takes indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and then it takes all of the language of the ascended, resurrected Christ in relationship to the Spirit, particularly Christ, particularly phrases like the Spirit of Christ and Christ bringing the Spirit and saying, Christ being the one saying that the teacher will come and occupy the role that I have. And it says that, to put it really crudely, that the Spirit and indwelling of the Spirit is the glue of union with Christ, okay? I don't want to try to like create an overly simplistic image, but that's kind of the mechanism of union with Christ through the Spirit of Christ, that is to say, through the Holy Spirit, okay? And so as if we have a robust, if we are robustly indwelled, by the Holy Spirit, which most people, even, even though they can't explain, for, it doesn't seem as difficult to wrap their, their mind around as being robustly united with Christ. That's what I'm suggesting is the case. I'm suggesting that the Holy, that, that, that the Holy Spirit accomplishes union with Christ. It is, in fact, the Spirit of Christ, Christ working even as the Spirit in us, in believers. All right, I have three minutes left, which is great because I usually never finish early. Any, I'm sure there's a lot of questions that could be asked, and that is perfectly fine. Does anyone want to ask one now? Yes, sir. In the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, uh -huh. is there any reason for us not to accept that as purely literal, literally, as we, because we believe that Right. The, the, the treasure of, right. of, of the Holy Spirit. Is there any reason for us not to believe that that's as literal as the fact that our spirit indwells within us? In other words, we're not a spirit with a body. That means we're not a body with a spirit. We're a spirit with a body. Yeah, so that's, that part there is well said. We're a spirit with the body. Um, you know, the challenge uh, that has been met by, try attempted to be met by Christian theologians and philosophers is to just ask that question of, of how the soul inhabits the body, period, as a parallel to the spirit inhabiting the soul. For example, when we say literally, I mean, if you cut open every atom of my body, you know, you wouldn't find the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, like, because the Holy Spirit is immaterial, 
It doesn't, he doesn't have mass. He doesn't have spatial extension. Um, there are some people hypothesize the Holy Spirit connects at the pineal gland. I think that is just utter and pure speculation, and that's actually based on uh, drug use, that that's when people have had some of their most religious experiences with substances that affect the pineal gland. Um, how the, the, actually how it works that the Spirit indwells me, does that mean that the Spirit is located in a particular part of me? Does that mean that, I mean, because He doesn't have spatial extension, it's not like He is, you know spread out through me, like part of the Spirit is over here and part of it's over here. So, so trying to understand the metaphysics of an immaterial God with no parts dwelling in me, um, I don't know is as straightforward as it sounds, but to answer your question, I do think that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is just as robust as our own souls inhabiting our our bodies. Now, I'm not saying that's how, how my soul inhabits my body is not at all straightforward. Like, that's not obvious to me how that works, but that's okay. It's, I think that's a profound mystery along with consciousness and all the rest. But as, as far as the parallel goes, yes, the Holy Spirit is in us just as much as um, we are a soul, something like that. Uh, and, and yeah. What else? Yes, sir. Can you see what? No, you cannot see anything that is immaterial. Yes, anything that is immaterial. You're not going to be able to, to see in that way. That it doesn't have spatial extension, but certainly not God, as we're going to even see. Yeah, yeah. You've seen one. Well, tell me about that later, okay? All right, let's pray. God, we are thankful to be able to approach uh, this subject, but we, we pray for the humility to kind of bow the knee at the fountain of mystery at a certain point. Um, even as we think of the Holy Spirit being the mechanism that accomplishes union with Christ or the union with Christ glue to risk being too simplistic or, or, or crude about it, um, we pray that this would give us a heightened sense of even our own identity with the resurrected Lord Jesus, um, that we would seek to understand the benefits of Christ through this lens, and that would motivate us towards holy living and a righteousness that has been declared over us because of a union that's been accomplished in and with us. Please bless our worship, the preaching of the word, our praying, and our singing in the next hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.